0: So I think at the moment, the prospect is certainly not for a quick Russian victory. That passed about 10 or 11 days ago at least. But it's also not, I think, for a quick Ukrainian victory. Uh, That's a low probability outcome right now, I would say. So the most likely outcome is stagnation, uh, which is very grim because it means a lot more death and destruction. And I would would add that the one unknown in this is whether or not the Russian army's morale collapses. Because in warfare, um, armies can suffer a sudden catastrophic collapse of morale, and they just suddenly break and run.
1: Hello, my name is Donald, and welcome to the number one media company, Worldview. At Worldview, we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. Today, we're talking of Dr. Stephen Davis, the doctor is the head of education at the IEA, and he has offered several, bu- several books that we will display on the screen, like The Economics and Politics of Brexit and The Streetwise Guide to the Devil and His Works. So, doctor, welcome back to the show. It's always a great privilege to speak to you. First of all, first of all I want to hear your opinion of the Ukraine war. So, Putin justifies this war by saying one of the main reasons is because of NATO expansion mm. to Eastern European countries. But some are saying that's just a smokescreen. That's it's he's a Hitler uh, reimagined he wants to cre- recreate Imperial Russia. So which do you think it is? Or isn't it neither of those two?
0: Neither, uh, actually, um, or both more or precisely, in know, in a way. Um, he Rush, He and the people around him in Russia were and are irritated at the least by NATO expansion into Eastern Europe and the prospect of uh, Ukraine and also Georgia becoming a NATO member and this is entirely predictable pretty much any Russian government that you think of um, apart from one that was actually allied to the United States and the West would be upset about that. In the same way that the United States would have a complete, you know, massive hissy fit if uh, suddenly, you know, oh, let's just say nuclear missiles were put in Cuba. Uh, when earth did that happen? So yes, it, it is the case that uh, the Russian state is agitated. On the other hand, that does not justify morally and legally. Uh, and I don't think it's the actual ultimate motive for the invasion. So you can say both that the policy of NATO expansion was going to wind up the Russians and, you know, irritate them, but also say that um, Putin has other goals uh, and ambitions behind the invasion and that the invasion is in any event, morally and legally unjustifiable. It's an act of, it's an act of aggression, uh, straightforwardly. Um, What those other goals are um, part, you know, you could say it's about recreating Imperial Russia. It's also got wider geostrategic goals. It's basically about trying to split the West up and to essentially uh, weaken the global position of the United States and to force other countries, particularly the US or also the EU, to treat Russia as a freestanding great power uh, and therefore move to a kind of at least a tripolar world, Russia, West, China, maybe even a multipolar world. So that's what the kind of broad geostrategic goal is. Uh, So I think that yes, I would say that NATO's policy towards um, Ukraine and also the Caucasus uh, in the last 15 years or so has been unbelievably incompetent and misguided because uh, it's been driven primarily by wishful thinking because in 2007 Putin made it pretty clear that he would not be at all happy and would not accept Ukraine becoming a member of NATO. Then in 2008 at the Bucharest summit Uh, the United States, George W. Bush, wanted Ukraine to be made a NATO member, along with Georgia. And this was vetoed by the French and the Germans. Uh, And they made it very clear there was absolutely no prospect of Ukraine joining NATO in the future, the foreseeable. Now, at that point, there were two different kinds of policies the West could have followed, either of which would have made sense. One of them would be to say, yeah, Ukraine is going to become a member. We know this will upset the Russians. So we will take the military steps that are needed to face down a russian response like putting ukraine under a nuclear umbrella for example and saying any troops coming into ukraine we, we push the big red button you know or something of that sort to make the cost to russia very very high that would have been a coherent policy it would also have been a coherent policy to say look uh, there's disagreement in the alliance we're not going to let nato in uh, ukraine in. it's not going to be a nato member we can guarantee that that would also have been a uh, you know defensible policy because it would have been coherent instead what we did was what the west did was to say oh well uh, ukraine has a right to become a member of nato and it's going to become a member of nato at some point but we don't know quite when which uh, but then also did absolutely nothing to back that up with military force so you get the worst of both worlds you both annoy the russians and you don't give the ukrainians at the time the backing they needed to deter a russian invasion so you end up with the worst possible outcome, which causes a lot of dead people. So it's an unbelievably incompetent policy, basically. They should have made a clear decision. But instead of making a clear decision, they went and fudged it. Uh, and uh, we've ended up with the disaster that we now have.
1: But don't you think that if, if the goal was to divide the West, that that has backfired? Because it seems oh, Europe Europe, and United States seems um, as united as it has ever been.
0: Absolutely. There are still divisions there. So uh, Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, had a very frank interview with The Economist where he divided up uh, the Western countries into, I think it was four categories, depending on what they wanted to see come out of the war. Um, And it was a remarkably frank and I think very accurate kind of description. But at the moment, those divisions are, as you correctly say, uh, very much uh, not on public view. And everyone is very much, you know, singing from the same hymn sheet, Rowing in the same direction and so yes it has its backfired massively uh if his goal was to actually weaken the connection between uh the united states and western europe which seems to be advancing pretty rapidly under donald trump then he's really had he's made a major error of judgment he's had precisely the opposite effect
1: i'd love to hear your your opinion on on this i floated the idea of perhaps why didn't the eastern european countries create a new non-aligned organization after the fall of the soviet union And instead of joining joining NATO, they should have aligned with each other and say, whether it's the West attacking us or the East attacking Mm. us, we will stand together and not fall under that brand of NATO of being anti-Soviet.
0: Yeah, that would have been a a very good solution. Um, The problem was that, um, well, first of all, they wanted to become part of what you might call the Western community of nations. And they saw NATO and EU membership. Um, as being the kind of way to do that. But also more practically, the problem with that uh, policy, which I think in many ways made a lot of sense, a kind of pact of Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, all the former Soviet bloc countries, apart from East Germany, of course. um, The problem with it was they didn't have their own domestic arms industry. They had no military capacity to back up such an alliance because of course, as Soviet satellite states, They'd got all their equipment made in Russia, uh, in the Soviet Union itself. They did not have, they had a lot of kit, but they didn't have the infrastructure to support it. Uh, and so it was much, they were very, no, they were all very worried about Russian revanchism. Uh, and so given that they didn't have the capacity to produce an effective alliance of the kind you suggest, good idea though that, that would have been. They therefore opted for becoming members of NATO as a way of getting protection against what they feared, and of course now fear even more, which is Russian revanchism. That was particularly true for Poland, which would have been the key player in uh, any kind of arrangement of the kind that you describe. So it would have been a good idea, but I think the practical physical underpinnings for such a thing didn't exist. Now, we talk about NATO, but it is worth saying that what that basically means is the Americans, because... Only the British and the French have military that are anything other than a total joke in NATO. Uh, It's basically the Americans that you're talking about here. So they chose to be reliant upon and have a security guarantee from the United States rather than have a mutual pact, the kind you describe. For that reason, they just didn't have the resources to back it up.
1: And Putin would probably have branded this new organization as being Western-backed anyway. He would have found a way to say, oh, but... They receive money from the waste or yeah. like, like well, exactly.
0: I mean, they would, and he would have been right about that because the thing is, given that they didn't have a sufficiently large domestic arms producing capacity, they would have had to equip their forces with kit bought from the United States and Western suppliers. So, uh, which they did, of course, they, they have done that. Uh, and so, it's although they still have a lot of former Soviet era kit there, but but yes, yeah, so uh, I would say it all comes back to the fact that they didn't have the indigenous. Uh, capacity to produce the materiel and kit that they needed to have an effective defense back of that kind which could be then they could then say no no we're doing this all ourselves we're not buying american battle tanks or aircraft or things like that
1: yeah interesting i never considered that but uh doctor how do you see this playing out like i mean it seems like both sides don't really know how to get out of the situation. Both, oh. both Zelensky and Putin wants this war to end, I, I believe. So, but mm. I don't really know how to compromise. So, Audi, what is the scenarios for an end to this war?
0: Okay, before I answer that, um, the scenario you've described is what pretty much happens in every war in history. Uh, apart from the very small number, which end in a decisive and quick victory for one side. The scenario you describe is is the kind of universal experience uh, because um, there's an Australian historian called Donald Blaney, who wrote a book many years ago called The Origins of War, which I strongly recommend. And the point Blaney makes, which when you think about it is obvious is this, nobody starts a war, starts a war uh, thinking, oh, we're gonna lose. You only start a war if you think you have a chance of winning. Or the alternative is, is much much worse um, and so basically uh, also you don't resist let's say you're attacked you only resist if you think that you have a chance of defeating the uh, aggressor uh, or you think again the alternative is worse so always invariably in wars one side or both has miscalculated uh, in this case Putin thought he was going to have an easy victory I think there's ample evidence for that, more of that in a moment. Um, the Ukrainians thought, you know, yeah, we're going to be, a, we, we can make this really expensive and fight them off. Um, so both sides miscalculated, but particularly Putin and the Russians. And this is what normally happens in wars. Somebody somewhere had blundered, as a poet once famously said. Uh, but then what happens is that after the war has gone on, Um, First of all, governments tend to suffer from a kind of fixed costs, sunk cost fallacy. They think, we can't draw back now, look at the amount of destruction and death we've had. Uh, You know, that would be like you know dishonouring the dead, so we've got to keep on fighting and kill some more people. Now, when you think about it that way, that is insane, actually. Um, You know, sunk cost is bad enough in economics. When you apply it to warfare... Ironical. ...it's completely disastrous. So if you think about the Great War of 1914-1918, By about 1915, all the combatants should have realised that it was going to be a complete bloody disaster and they weren't going to get what they wanted and they should have come to a compromised peace. But they all felt, oh no, we've already had like a million dead, you know, whatever it was. Uh, We we have to keep on going. Um, It's it's like Macbeth, you know, I am in blood, stepped in so far that to wade back were as hard as to go, Or you know, I might as well go on with it. Uh, But also, um, once you get into a war, each side fears the consequences of uh, settling for a compromise. They fear that if they do this, it will destroy their own position. And you can see this throughout the whole of history. People get into a war, but then they find they haven't got what in the sort of like current jargon is an exit ramp. They haven't got an easy or straightforward way of getting out of it without suffering huge political damage maybe sparking off internal rebellion maybe you know getting overthrown something of that sort uh, and so for that reason it proved much more difficult to end a war even when all the rational kind of calculation would be that yeah it makes sense for both parties to do it now going to your main point what is the outcome going to be well when the russians um started building up their forces around ukraine a lot of people say oh they're not going to debate it's just saber rattling personally uh i said in print and on media that i thought about the week before the invasion i said i thought there's about a 55 chance the russians are going to invade on the basis that you don't do all this kind of stuff uh unless you are seriously thinking at least that you might do it and so i said that i think they probably are going to invade but i certainly only gave it 55 percent. however the form the invasion took was not what i expected certainly and i don't think it was what most analysts and observers expected. What I expected and what most military analysts expected was for uh, the Russians to invade the Donbass, maybe strike down southward from Kharkiv and also strike out of Crimea to try and build a land bridge between Crimea and the Donbass and expand probably up the Nika to Kherson, uh, so as to get control of the Black Sea littoral. Now that would have been a limited objective which in military terms regardless of what you think of the ethics of it makes sense and also the Russians have been able in that case to concentrate overwhelming superiority of men and materiel on that relatively small front and the basic principle in warfare uh, which you you know it's a kind of rough rule of thumb is that if you're going to attack an enemy in an entrenched defensive position you need at least a three to one superiority in combat troops and materiel before you even think about doing it. Even if you do have a three to one superiority, you sweat like mad before you actually you know, give the go ahead. If you're talking about a maritime landing or an airborne landing, you, you need a five or six to one superiority. The defense always has a big advantage. Now what the Russians did, instead of concentrating their forces in the south and east like that, they attacked on five separate axes, a broad front right around the whole of the Russo-Ukraine and Belarusian border. And a massive attack like that, they just didn't have the resources to take it off. They didn't have that three to one superiority that I mentioned. Uh, plus also, um, it's very, very hard to coordinate. Uh, you know, there's a reason why we talk about the fog of war. When you're the, so the Supreme Commander, the Russian General Staff or the Army Commanders, the big problem in a large complex operation like the one the Russians actually launched is that you don't have a bloody clue what is going on. Uh, it is so difficult to find out what's actually going on at the company or platoon level which is where the actual fighting is going on and so uh, you get complete it's extremely difficult it's very very challenging to coordinate an operation of that size and of course it turns out there were lots of screw-ups it wasn't well coordinated then in addition to that the russians um, and this really baffled everybody in the first few days. They did not use their air, their advantage in aircraft to attack Ukraine's um, missile defense and air bases and gain air superiority. They allowed the Ukrainians to continue to um, shoot down Russian aircraft and fly planes of their own. They also did not use their tanks initially. They held back most of their armor in the first few days. Now, that's an elementary error, you might think, in military tactics because when you have what's called a combined arms operation, which is where you combine small arms, um, airborne strikes and armour in the modern context, uh, you want to have overwhelming force in all three elements at, in, immediately, right up front, because you want to break through as quickly as possible. And because they didn't bring their armour up and their heavy artillery, they weren't able to do that. And so the result was the Ukrainians do extremely brave and very adept and flexible defence were able to you know, inflict very severe casualties on them. Now, why did they do that? Well, I think the only plausible explanation of it is that Putin and the FSB, the Russian security service, former KGB, they believed that they had subverted enough Ukrainian generals and oligarchs that the army would just collapse and a lot of it would just surrender and they would be able to put a puppet government in place. And they discovered that they'd miscalculated that they, that didn't happen. The Ukrainian army did not all surrender. They fought very bravely and very determinedly. And they suddenly realized they got off on completely the wrong foot. So what they're now doing is they've given up on that five-pronged attack. They've pulled all their troops back from north, uh, north and northeast Ukraine, around Sumy uh, and uh, Chernyhev and Kiev. They're concentrating now on what most military analysts think they should have concentrated on from the get-go, which is the, the Donbass. And the question is, how is that going to work out? Now, a lot of the troops they're relocating there are, in the jargon of the military analysts, degraded, which is a nice euphemism for saying half of them have been killed, or uh, injured so badly that they're, you know, no longer fit to fight, or they're completely, you know, their morale is shot to hell because they've gone through terrible experience. Uh, so it's not clear how effective they're going to be. So the war is going to go on for several more months at least uh, before we know the Russians. succeed in a kind of more moderate goal of conquering all of the donbass and the black sea littoral. if they do that then i think putin will try and have a ceasefire to regroup uh the ukrainians by that point may well also feel that they uh, have to agree to a ceasefire because they they don't have the equipment that they need to really push the russians back as long as the russian morale holds up that's a big uh, if in this context because they don't have tanks uh, or enough of them, enough tanks. They don't have enough ground attack aircraft or helicopters to mount a really effective combined arms attack towards Donetsk and Luhansk and uh, re- regain the literal around um, Mariupol. So we could see a, stag- a stagnation. And that's the point at which it becomes really uh, interesting as to whether or not pressure is put on Ukraine to um, come to some kind of ceasefire agreement or compromise, maybe letting the Russians keep Crimea and the two eastern provinces. Um, Personally, I don't think the the West is going to put pressure on Zelensky. Uh, I think that would be um, politically impossible for a lot of Western governments to do. Uh, Now, that means the war is probably going to go on for quite a long time. Uh, I imagine it will then continue at a low level uh, for maybe years. Could no, certainly no end date I would put in it. So I think at the moment the prospect is certainly not for a quick Russian victory. That past about 10 or 11 days ago, at least. But it's also not, I think, for a quick Ukrainian victory. Uh, That's a low probability outcome right now, I would say. So the most likely outcome is stagnation, uh, which is very grim because it means a lot more death and destruction. And I would would add that the one unknown in this is whether or not the Russian army's morale collapses because in warfare, um, armies can suffer a sudden catastrophic collapse of morale and they just suddenly break and run. And abandon their positions and whenever this happens in history of warfare it happens very very suddenly uh, almost without warning it appears that people have a kind of mental telepathy by which they suddenly all decide hell with this we're going home and they all turn and run by the way that's when most of you get killed uh, the, the number the majority of casualties in most battles occur when you're trying to run away from the other guys and they shoot you in the back or club you in the head with the sword and this kind of thing um so that could happen at any moment. And the nature of the phenomenon itself is that it's impossible to predict when it happens. It's like a market collapse, a stock market bubble. You know, it's, you, you suspect it could happen, but you have no idea when it's going to happen. So it's the same with a collapse in Russian morale. That could happen next week, could happen in two months time, could happen in a year's time, could never happen. Uh, so you can't rely on that, which is why at the moment I would say I would give the shortest odds for the war going on, certainly through the winter, uh, an internet spring right now
1: yeah fascinating yeah I, I can't even imagine this war going on for months obviously the media would love that but um and the, and the russians have a history of um collapsing morale in that particular yeah. region especially well during the first world war that's
0: yeah very much so i mean that's what happened with 1917 but twice you know the czarist army their morale collapses um after the Brusselov offensive and the result is the, the february revolution and then very foolishly the provisional government doesn't make peace with the Central powers and the army just like all goes home and that's why the Bolsheviks were able to seize power so yeah the Russians are, are, have had a history and also in the early stages of uh, operation um, Barbarossa uh, where obviously they had incredibly stupid policy and the Germans were able to you know outflank them and you know, envelop huge numbers of troops but also in the first battle of Kiev for example the um, uh, large numbers of Russian units just disintegrated. So there is a history of this. It's actually it's not just them. I mean, pretty much every army has a history of this kind of thing. You know, even the Americans at the Battle of the Yalu in 1951, uh, the US Army up there on the border of North Korea and China, they just disintegrated when the Chinese uh, volunteers, quote, volunteers unquote, uh, came across the border. Uh, so uh, it, you know, you might think an army has got an incredibly good morale, but Um, It's amazing what the stress of combat and uh, even more important military failure can do to the morale of an army. Um, So, yeah, who knows all that?
1: But, Doctor, isn't really the main consequence of this the economic fallout? I mean, we're already seeing massive inflation increases here in South Africa in terms of um, sunflower oil and those kinds of things Mm. increasing. And I mean, I, I believe the Russians and the Chinese have made an agreement before this war to... Um, end Western dominance. There's some sort of agreement that they made, and yeah. the Chinese are now buying oil or petrol with um their currency. Well, so, so, yeah, Iran, be, so no. isn't, isn't the real um, a consequence? Main thing of this is the economic fallout, especially if the war goes on for months.
0: Yes. Uh, w- well, yes, but I would. There are two different kinds of things that you're talking about there, uh, and I, I would make them think Obviously, the war has a big economic effect in certain sectors. It has a big impact on the global wheat market and on things like sunflower because Ukraine is one of the world's largest producers of sunflower oil and so on. Has a big effect on global fertilizers because the sanctions on Russia do because Russia is the world's largest exporter of certain kinds of fertilizer. However, um, the war is not the main cause of the inflation that we're seeing Um, because that, and we know that for a fact because the inflation was seriously advanced before the war started. So if you look at sunflower oil, for example, you'll see there's a big price spike. The the graph is going along, and then suddenly there's like a shoot up like that, like a rocket, a big spike. But if you look at the date of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, it's halfway up that spike. The spike had already begun before the invasion happened. And it wasn't driven primarily by the fear of an invasion because markets were tending to discount that. So, There are other factors that are driving things like the rise in uh, fertilizer prices, the rise in food prices generally, the rise in grain price, sunflower price, and oil, cooking oil, all that kind of thing. Two things I think are ultimately driving it. and The war in Ukraine is just like an exacerbatory factor rather than the main cause. One is the enormous expansion in the money supply in certain parts of the world during the COVID pandemic, particularly the United States, but also the Eurozone. Uh, and to a lesser extent, Japan, but mainly the Eurozone and the US, uh, and other countries like the UK. Uh, The money supply expanded dramatically, and most of that expansion was in broad money, M4, as it's called, uh, because the money that was created through things like furlough schemes went into the pockets of ordinary households. And therefore, you've got an enormous monetary overhang, because they had all this money coming in, but because of lockdowns, they couldn't spend it. Because there was nothing to do, everything was locked down, you know. So basically, the velocity at which money was circulating collapsed. But now the velocity of money has gone back to normal, pretty much. And so all that monetary overhang is there, and the money is now circulating around the economy. And the result is, uh, you know, the, the value of which, the rate at which money exchanges for goods has gone down. So we get rising prices. The other thing, though, is global supply side tightening. So in a whole number of areas, like food like gas natural gas like petrol oil oil products we've got very very sticky supply side Um, even when the demand for things like natural gas goes up which it has done strongly this year the supply side is sufficiently inelastic that you don't get the additional supply that would normally follow or it requires major investment which takes two or three years to work through so the result is you've got a very firm supply-side ceiling, and you've got rising demand because of the bounce back from the pandemic. And that's what's led to this rising in prices all over the place. Uh, the really alarming thing is food, where global food stocks are at the lowest level they've been since the 1970s. Global food supply, which is one of the great success stories of the last 40, 50 years, is currently uh it's just not rising fast enough to cope with increased demand. There's also a big problem with misallocation and waste, but that, that's another issue. So that's what is driving most of this problem. The war certainly doesn't help, and it makes it worse. However, I do agree with you that the global, the economic effects of this war is going to be the biggest long legacy, particularly if it lasts for a long time, as I suspect it will. Uh, and you mentioned the main one, which is the sanctions the West has imposed on Russia. Now, Um, I must say, I was quite surprised just how far they went, because basically they they used the sanctions nuclear weapon when they sanctioned Russia's central bank. What they did essentially, what they, I mean, the United States, the EU and Japan, they seized the Russian central bank's foreign exchange assets, which were located outside Russia, most of them, because being foreign currency, they're kept outside Russia in the United States or various parts of Europe. Now, that has never been done before. And the trouble is, I think the West is going to regret having done that. I think it was the right thing to do. And it's certainly a way of putting effective pressure on Russia, but on the other hand, I do think that it's going to, they're going to regret it because if you are China with a trillion dollars worth of foreign exchange assets, what are you now going to think? You're going to think, wow, that could be us those assets are maybe not that secure because they can be seized at any moment and held hostage basically which is what we're talking about here so that gives the chinese and a lot of other governments around the world and for that matter large private firms a really powerful incentive to diversify away from the dollar in particular and to try and find alternative um, ways of parking you know surplus money or reserves that they have uh, off the system and so I think in the sort of like medium term future the next decade um, this is going to put the dollar's reserve currency status under very very severe strain because uh, major players notably China but others as well like India for example the Gulf states uh, they're all going to be thinking that it's just not safe or secure to uh, have so much of your eggs in the one basket of the dollar basically and so I think that that economic effect which is the structure of the world economic financial system basically is going to be massively affected by the war uh, over the, but that's not an immediate effect that's going to work itself out over the next decade but i think you're quite right that is going to be by far the biggest effect because if the dollar were to lose its world reserve status uh things would get seriously interesting i would not like to be american president if that happened
1: yeah i I know everything is relative and obviously um vladimir putin is not hitler precisely because he's not clearly an anti-semite or he wants the entire world well we think he doesn't want to start a world war but i mean you have you have to admit there's some similarities between him and hitler with their justification for annexing these territories they they somehow followed the same route in terms of justifying it by saying their people are in those countries. They are, there's a large amount of Germans in Austria and Czechoslovakia. That's why I want those lands. And yeah. Vladimir Putin did the same thing. And like um, Hitler overextended with Poland, Vladimir Putin overextended with the Ukraine. Is, isn't there some similarity there?
0: Yeah, of course there is. Um, this is revanchism revanchism is a well-known historical phenomenon where it's one of the problems of nationalism, basically. Uh, The problem with nationalism is that um, a a nation state by definition is a state of a particular people. But the problem is how do you define what that people is? And also what if the people defined in some way, linguistically, for example, say in the case of Germans, German speakers, um, is not all in one state. There are members of that nation who are subjects of other states. This could lead to revanchism. The idea that what you should do is take chunks of other countries' weight so you can bring all that, that particular nation together. It's the problem of organizing the world on the basis of nations, uh, commonly understood. is one of the bad side effects of that. And in the case of Russia, what you have is a particular notion of Russia as not just a nation state, but a civilizational state. Uh, this is an idea that Putin has got from a number of court intellectuals, notably this chap Alexander Dugin, Uh, this idea of Eurasianism and the idea that Russia is not just a national state for the Russian people, but it's a civilizational state for a distinct civilization. That is why orthodoxy is such a key part of Putin's government and his legitimacy. The idea that um, it's the state of uh, the particular form that Russian orthodoxy has taken. Now, in that context, Putin has this notion, which is historically completely bonkers, but he believes it, which is what matters, that Ukraine is not a proper country. That it should really—it's just little Russia. It should be part of this like civilizational state. He feels the same way about Belarus. But of course, he's got a stooge there, a puppet in Lukashenko, uh, and so the the, the, the the hence the revanchism. Uh, so there is a similarity with Hitler. It's not just with Hitler. This is a similarity with you know um, late nineteenth, early twentieth century economic, um, nationalist revanchism generally. It seems strange to us because. Um, we we haven't had so much revanchist politics since 1945 because of the way altering territorial borders by force has simply been a big no-no because we had this very bad experience, obviously, in the first two-thirds, of the tw- first half of the 20th century. But yes, there is a similarity there. It's the same phenomenon, basically.
1: Doctor, I want to move the discussion to um, a topic that we covered <coughs> the last time you were in worldview, and that's political realignments. Now, we yeah. know with your research and the research of others, what is a political realignment but what is not so well known is why do they happen why does the political realignment happen and why is it almost cyclical that it happens every 30 to 50 years yeah.
0: well i have a particular answer to that um not everyone who thinks there are realignments going on shares this thesis i'm about to put to you um a lot of people think it has more to do with uh ideas basically, but I think that's that's wrong. I think ideas are a secondary phenomenon rather the primary driving force here. I have a materialist explanation for this, and it goes back to the question of what is politics about now in any given society. (coughs) There are going to be conflicts of interest in that society different groups of people will want or demand different things from the collective decision making process and the purpose of politics is to reconcile those competing demands in a way that is peaceful. Politics is the alternative to war essentially. Now what happens is that those competing demands are shaped and determined ultimately by sorry excuse me cop that but what in Marxist terms is called the material productive forces if you will. The way in which the economic and social life of society, the productive life of society is conducted and carried on. Now, uh, what happens is that that changes, and it changes in response to, I think, the long run technological innovation and investment cycle. So you can see the world of the last like 250 years as consisting of a succession of roughly 60 to 70 year long cycles each of which is driven by a novel suite of technologies. And the suite of technologies is invented in the last phase of the previous cycle. And then in the first 30 years of the new cycle, it's rolled out. And then in the last 30 years of the cycle, that m- technology matures, and you go from having record profits to increasingly marginal profits. Now. What happens as the new technology becomes rolled out and you get economic and social transformation is that um, the conflicts in society change. So when the major technologies were things like oil, the internal combustion engine, electricity, um, manufacturing industry, large scale mass production of the kind Henry Ford pioneered, the big conflict in society was broadly between the owners of capital and the, the working class. And so you've got a politics reflecting that now since roughly the 1960s the big dominant technologies that are driving this current cycle which is coming to an end are computing it it and communications technologies the media and what we've seen is a, a division of a different kind which you could say really is the division between the globally connected the people who live and work in globally connected industries in globally connected metropolitan areas like gauteng in south africa or cape town or new york or paris or london or sydney and the people who live in small towns and rural areas who are not globally connected in that way and that conflict is what is now being reflected in the new political alignment that i see coming about so that's why it has this kind of cyclical quality you tend to get a really big realignment every 70 years or so uh, and the last big one really was almost 100 years ago in the 1920s uh, and you then get slightly smaller realignments at 40 year intervals but it's driven by I think uh the physical change in the way people live and the way um economic life works so I I have a kind of materialist account of this um which sounds rather Marxist but it's not a Marxist one because I don't share Marx's normative take on this and I also don't share his vision that um, this is all heading towards a particular end state or destination, which he thought was you know, socialism and communism. I don't think there is a particular end state. It's just a succession of changes, one after the other, one damned thing after another, as somebody once said.
1: That's fascinating. Do you think it's uh, tied in with age as well? Because it's usually the younger people that embrace the new technology yes. as it rolls out, and the older generation holds out. And because yeah, the yeah, younger. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, there's clearly a generational effect because as you say um the older generation their views and their opinions formed in a time when the old technological sweeps and the social divisions it gave rise to were dominant and that shapes their mindset the way they think about the world uh, whereas the younger generation they're forming their vision of the world and their opinions in the light of the new technologies that are now transforming the economy in a different way and so they tend to think about it different uh, in a different Uh, different way. And as a result, there is all, that's one of the reasons why you have roughly this kind of 30-year span. It's it's a reflection partly of the experience of the older generation versus the younger generation. So yeah, undoubtedly there is.
1: Doctor, I don't know if you've read The Psychology of Mass Movements by Eric Hoffer. Yes. Yes. In, in the book he, he makes a very uh, powerful argument as to it, it's essentially an intellectuals that create a mass movement they they lay, they lay the groundwork and it's not for example hitler that created an anti-semitic movement it's the doctors and the professors and the generals before him that lay that groundwork mm. he, he merely harnessed it do, do you agree with that sort of premise
0: with a big caveat, um, I, I'm a big fan of Hoffer. I, I think he's, he's one of the you know, little-known geniuses of the 20th century. Uh, my favourite book, by the way, is, um, you're the true believer there. My favourite one is the, is the Ordeal of Change, which I think is a brilliant little book. But anyway, yes, I, I agree with Hoffer that intellectuals are key figures. Intellectuals profits, as he calls them as well. Um, intellectuals who mobilise mass movements. But the question is, why do they get a reception? And I think Hoffer's own argument gives you the answer. So what the intellectuals do is to create ideas that enable people to make sense of what they're experiencing. Uh, so people are experiencing things that uh, agitate them. And above all, they're experiencing change very often which most human beings found disconcerting and discombobulating. Uh, most people do not like change. There is a minority who welcome and like it. Most people are, are, are not at least made anxious by big changes going on around them. And the trouble is you have all kinds of problems in maybe in your personal life, which... Although you may not realise it, this is the sociological imagination point, they're created by these larger structural changes. You, so therefore you may be pissed off about a whole lot of things, you may be agitated about a whole lot of things, but how do you make sense of it? Now what the intellectuals do, the prophets do, is to give you a way of understanding what's going on. They say to you, yes, you're mad about the way you can't get a job in the German legal profession. And to tell you why it's because of all these Jews who are monopolizing all the jobs and controlling the German economy. And you think, ah, oh, yes, that makes sense, you know, and you suddenly become an anti Semite. Uh, so, yes, the, 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 it's the material conditions which actually make people receptive. But um, what then is very important is how people. Uh, the intellectuals then explain or make sense of what people are experiencing. And sometimes you have explanations which lead them to respond and act in constructive ways. On other occasions, as with people like the late 19th century anti might you alluded to, you get people who lead um, people to respond in a way that is deeply destructive. And also what that does is to give meaning to life because um, what people find very, very hard to deal with is the idea that the world is just random and meaningless. Most human beings, we are, as a species, we are a kind of meaning-seeking species. And most people find the idea that the world is just like random shit incredibly disturbing. Uh, that, that, that We do not want to believe that. Uh, and so what we are on the lookout for is systematic bodies, thought, theory, argument, and the like. Um, or even art or poetry and things of that sort, which enable us to feel that the world is somehow more coherent. Even if the story you get is that the world is controlled by a bunch of evil people who are manipulating everything, um, then, you know, it's apparently most people would rather believe that than believe that the world is just like complete chaos. They'd rather think that there's lizards controlling everything. Um, Or they'd rather believe that the people who run the world are evil but incredibly competent. Uh, that's much less scary than thinking that the world is run by people who don't know what they're doing, uh, which is actually much more like the truth. So that's what the intellectuals do, yes, and they, they are very, very important. And so it is important to produce understandings, if you like, of what is going on and explain to people what is going on why it's happening why they're having the experiences and psychological you know experiences that they are in a way that does not then lead to destructive or self-destructive responses to that
1: yeah definitely i think um the fear of everything happening randomly is is that then you have to take personal responsibility it's it's that that's what happens and most people don't want to do that that's frightening to most people
0: it is, absolutely. And all, but also, um, it, it relates to the feeling that if the world is random, then it's meaningless. Now, that is actually not true. I mean, you can make the existentialist point, the kind of, you know, um, Camus point that, OK, the world may be random, terrible things may be happening like the plague in Algiers and so on, uh, for no apparent reason. It's just like bolt bottom the blue. But that doesn't mean that you can't take responsibility in your own life and give meaning to the, your own experience and that's for others like the main character in his novel the, the plague, La Peste uh the doctor in Algiers um uh, so it's um uh, there is however most people don't realize that they think that uh, if the meaning is not there from the outside so to speak from God or some other Big world, historical purpose, or something, then uh, it's just meaningless. And human beings find that very, very hard to cope with. Not just because it puts the onus on them to be responsible for what they can do, um, but also because they just feel that it's very scary living in a, a pointless universe. But they don't. What they don't realize is you can give it a point. You know, even even if you don't believe in God, you can still say, well, you know, I can make cho- choices, and those choices are what give meaning and structure to. Uh, my life and the life of others around me.
1: Yeah, the, the, what I took from that book, the psychology of mass movements, and how I understood it is that intellectuals, their responsibility is basically to rebrand bad ideas. So, for example, if you take Africa, it, it was dominated for years by feudalism, and what the intellectuals did, everyone realized, okay, feudalism doesn't work, so we gave it a new name, socialism, because essentially, what is the difference between? A minister of sport or a minister of communication, and the Duke of York—it's—it's it's both titles of nobility.
0: Yeah, this is absolutely true. Uh, the, the point is, um, there's a distinction between what you might call critical intellectuals and court intellectuals, uh, and it's a hard distinction to make because a lot of people who are actually court intellectuals think they're critical intellectuals. So, the court intellectuals' job is to justify uh, power, basically, uh, and to explain why people why there should be power and why the people who have the power and the people you should bow and scrape to basically sometimes you have what are appear to be critical intellectuals who say well okay the people who've got the power are the wrong people so you should have these people in power um but they still accept the principle that there should be power okay so that's what well that's what i think hofer is meaning by that it's that you have a, a justification of a system where most people are not in charge of their life to any degree Uh, but some people have the power and the ability to tell other people what to do, uh, ultimately. And what what they do is they find ways of justifying this. And as you say, they move from one way of justifying it to another way of justifying it to another way. Critical intellectuals are ones who um, see their role as being to make people understand better what the reality of the world is, Um, and then leave it up to you to decide what to do with it, Uh, give you the tools, if you will, uh, to actually you know, decode the kind of messages that the powers that be are constantly trying to, you know, pump over at us uh, and also decide independently what it is we want to do and uh, to achieve in our life. Um, But um, there are very, very few people like that, actually. The, The temptations to become a court intellectual are very, very strong because that's where the rewards are.
1: Do you think there are some organizations that this? that I know, and I agree with you that most people in power don't really know what they're doing or are mm. incompetent, but do you think there's some organizations that know the theories behind political realignment? And if, if you, for example, want to create a communist utopia, you can invest in intellectuals that try to sell that. So are there some organizations that really try to shape a political realignment?
0: Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Um, I mean, this is, um, and this is not new. Uh, Astute rulers and politicians have been trying to do this for a very long time. Um, So, Bismarck, for example, had this whole big row with the German Catholic Church, the Kulturkampf, uh, back in the 1870s. And that was all about trying to control uh, the culture and the mindset of the German public. He didn't like the fact that there were all these Jesuit schools that, you know, were having a big influence on um, people in South Germany in particular. So this is not new. Uh, and yeah, there are people like this, uh, ideological entrepreneurs, you might say, who are trying to uh, build mass movements or build uh, or take advantage of these shifts in opinion that manifest as political realignments to promote their own gender. The obvious example is, is Putin, uh, because Putin has been supporting uh, national collectivists, so-called uh, you know, right-wing populists all across Europe and indeed in North America um that there's been directly or indirectly money given to them like all sorts of cyber stuff done to support them uh twitter accounts and twitter bots busily you know promoting certain kind of positions um, and that's precisely for his own reasons uh very much his own like you know personal selfish reasons and reasons the interests of the russian elite of which he's the head um he's been, you know, trying to mold and shape a particular kind of political current. Uh, by the way, it's a lot of his miscalculations. I think, you know, he's, he's definitely damaged it by his invasion, but also um, he's led, as we can see in France, for example, for a large part of that movement to, like, distance themselves from him. So it's not had the result he wanted. But he's a classic example of exactly what you describe.
1: Doctor, I want to move on to a topic I'd love to hear your opinion on. I've, I've watched a lot of interviews of Peter Hitchens and I know you yeah. probably know who he is and he's very critical of the the position of many governments to legalize marijuana especially yeah. in the UK and this argument in one of the interviews wow. was that it leads to violence that those who smoke pots I, I mean he cited an example of a student or a child that killed his parents in the UK and this child said it was because of marijuana. So what would your opinion of this stance be? And what would be the libertarian response be to his argument?
0: Well, OK, um, I actually debated Peter Hitchens once um, at Exeter University. It was one of my, uh, not only the experience, I'll come back with fondness, because I lost the debate, actually. Um, the, the motion was that this house would legalise marijuana. And Peter won the debate by arguing that marijuana legalization was a conspiracy by a wicked big companies to uh, have another product to flog to people and he knew his audience that that got a win um, the, the, if you think about the particulars of it um, the idea that marijuana leads to violence um, is on the face of it ridiculous because as anyone who smoked don't knows what it actually does is make you incredibly chilled and like you know, Not interested in doing anything apart from, you know, talking rubbish, basically, and just lying around like an idiot. Um, Other stuff, angel dust or, you know, cocaine, yes, you know, makes you manic and aggressive. Mm -hmm. However, this is where, to to give Peter, you know, some credit, um, there is very, very strong evidence that uh, if you already have a predisposition to schizophrenia, then uh, smoking marijuana, particularly between the ages of roughly about 14 and mid-twenties or so is likely to trigger uh, the schizophrenia um, most sch- schizophrenia normally presents in the early to mid-twenties uh, and if, if you you what you find is that you'll have a kind of genetic predisposition to schizophrenia um, and that uh, if you smoke marijuana you are m- much more likely for that predisposition to actually manifest and it'll present as full-blown schizophrenia and of course schizophrenics. And then commit violent acts because the voices in their head have told them to do it or something like that. Uh, Now, um, I think it is true that um, certainly, well, there's two statistics, both of which are true. Marijuana increases the chances of your getting schizophrenia significantly. The overwhelming majority of people who smoke marijuana will suffer no adverse health effects whatsoever. The basic rule of thumb is if you have a close relative, uh, which means anything up to a cousin, who has had a schizophrenic episode, you should never think of smoking marijuana. Um, It's just really risky for you. At least you shouldn't start smoking until you reach 30. Uh, It seems with that illness, if it doesn't manifest by that age, then it's it's quite unlikely to manifest. So basically there is a high health risk, but it's very, very clearly identifiable. Now, the conclusion he draws is, is that therefore you should ban it and you should send people who smoke marijuana to prison. Uh, And I think this is a ludicrous answer. And Never mind about libertarian position, it's a ludicrous answer on straightforward, uh, utilitarian, uh, rational policy grounds. Because what it does is it means that you're going to enrich a whole lot of people, criminals. You are going to mean that because of the incentives those criminals face, they are going to constantly look to ramp up the strength of their product. So prohibition of marijuana is what has led To the development of ever stronger forms of marijuana and varieties of the product. So, the kind of dope people were smoking back in the summer of love in the 60s was nowhere near as potent, as powerful as the kind of skunk that's being consumed these days. But that's a product of prohibition. In the United States, the 1920s, prohibition turned America from being a nation of beer drinkers into a nation of hard liquor drinkers uh, for the same reason. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. But also it means that the kind of health advice I just you know, gave in my own way um, is not available because you, you can't really give people health advice about how to use an illegal product. It doesn't work that way. Um, plus, of course, it's completely ineffective. Uh, it, you know, it, that's biggest failure ever. I mean, Peter Hitchens thinks it's because we haven't locked up enough people. Uh, but I mean, the, the reality is that there's a widespread demand for this product. Uh, and unless you're going to lock up literally about a third of the population in many parts of uh, countries, you're not going to be able to get rid of that demand uh, and the people are going to meet that su- supply to that demand. So what should you do? Well, I think the answer is, uh, I don't think smoking dope is good for you, um, it, it, particularly not if you smoke heavily and consistently. It, it does have pretty adverse effects, I think, in terms not of illness or schizophrenia or violence, but in terms of just basically making not fit to work a of the time. So, the same as a, a drink problem would affect you that way. So, what I think you need to think of is what is the best way of reducing, if you're a libertarian, something that you think as a libertarian people should have the right to do? Because the libertarian position is that this is a matter of personal autonomy. Uh, it's the John Stuart Mill view. You know, if you want to do something, even if it's bad for you, other people have no right to stop you. Uh, so, if you would take that libertarian point, how do you deal with a product which is, you know, still maybe not something you want to see widely used well i think the answer is to look at the way temperance worked in the 19th century you have a kind of voluntary social movement to try and discourage uh, people from doing it and uh, we can see how this has worked with all kinds of things you know there's uh, people have changed their dietary choices massively in the last 30 or 40 years not because the government has done anything but because there are tons of people going to diet clubs and so on and i think that's the way to do it so that that's uh, he's Even if you were to accept Peter's argument that there's some serious you know, risks, which I think is massively overstated, there isn't a the risk he describes, uh, the solution he advocates, that of prohibition, is completely the wrong one. It's just totally wrong-headed.
1: Yeah, and with my limited personal experience of marijuana, I can testify that it's almost impossible to contemplate murdering anyone. It's Yeah,
0: you're, just too the... big. you're, you're totally spaced out. No? Yeah. I mean... Having observed what it's like, not not done it myself, I can say that cocaine users, on the other hand, I would not be surprised if they're more likely to assault somebody because that makes you into a total, well, self-obsessed manic idiot, basically.
1: But I think you would agree with this um, comment that the main reason why states want to legalize marijuana is not because of some... Um, good intentions it's because they want to tax marijuana they, yes, as, a, absolutely. As, a, absolutely. as a syntax and they can make a lot of money like like they make from alcohol or sugar by taxing marijuana that's what i want to legalize marijuana
0: yeah absolutely uh th- that that's very much the case and you can see this in the united states where it's become a major revenue source for states like Colorado and American states are typically on the Ruppers financially so they are desperate to do this uh, and that's why I think ultimately um, it's going to it's going to get through um, by the way it works the other way in reverse uh, why did we get prohibition in the United States in 1921 uh, uh, despite the fact that there'd been a huge temperance movement in the US for you know decades before then well it's because until 1913 the US federal government got a lot of its money from taxes on alcohol Uh, so they couldn't afford to make it illegal then in 1913 they passed the amendment to the constitution that allowed an income tax and as a result they suddenly had oodles of money and they didn't need the alcohol tax so much and that was enough to tick a critical number of people in congress from one side to the other to pass the constitutional amendment that outlawed alcohol Um, so uh, it, it works in both directions in that case it was the Uh, lack of need for the tax on the product, alcohol in that case, that led to its prohibition. So it's working the other way around now with marijuana.
1: Yeah, doctor, um, I I see we're running out of time. Um, I didn't get to all the topics that I want to cover. And yeah, this is such a fascinating conversation. I hope we can somewhere in the future cover the topics that we didn't get to. Um, Sure. But but, but I want to give you one last opportunity to add, or say anything that you want to, or answer a question that you hoped I would ask you.
0: Um, Well, I I understood that you were going to ask me about the prospects for secession within South Africa or from South Africa, say the Western Cape breaking away. Uh, My basic principle here is is very very straightforward. I'm always in favour of breaking up large countries into smaller countries and smaller countries into even smaller countries. So my default position is always to favour secessionists. Uh, There is actually an empirical reason for this, which is that there is very strong evidence that small countries defined as countries with a population between 1 million and about five to 7 million are much better governed and have much better politics than large countries. And so generally speaking for various, you can work out why this is for various reasons, you're much better off in a small country of like a million, 2 million people uh, than you are in a really large country. And so I would definitely favor Uh, breaking up a country like South Africa or uh, the United Kingdom, I'm strongly in favor of Scottish independence for example, i have been since I was about 14. Um, And I I think that that's the basic way to go. Uh, The more countries the merrier. And also, which is relevant to our earlier on in the conversation, um, a ruling class or despots can do a lot less damage if they control a small part of the planet's surface than if they control a large part. If Hitler had gone back to Austria at the end of World War One and become the dictator of Austria, that would have been bad news for the Austrians, particularly the Jews, but it would not have been a problem for the rest of Europe. The problem was he went to Germany and became dictator of a large powerful country. Similarly, Vladimir Putin would not be a problem for the rest of the world if he only controlled Moscow. The problem is that he controls a very large country with a very large military. So smaller countries People who control them can do a lot less damage to the world than people who control large countries. So break countries up. That's my basic principle.
1: And there wouldn't be world wars if the British and the French had all those colonies.
0: Yeah, indeed. Well, the, those, the, those colonies were what led to a couple of what were the first world wars. I mean, the Seven Years' War and the War of the Spanish Succession are actually the first the two first world wars world wars you know and that was mostly fought over colonies you know the french and the british were fighting for control of well the cape of good hope um you know west africa the sugar islands as they called them at the time the west indies india uh, so they're fighting all over the ruddy planet to control these colonies you know um had they not got into the empire business and the colony business then they wouldn't have had a well they still had occasion to fight in europe but there wouldn't have been a world war
1: but yeah thank you doctor um to our worldview audience wherever you are please consider liking this video sharing as widely as possible and subscribing to our channel my name is donald and you've been watching Worldview.